0: Just blew me away. What was going on in behind closed doors, the collusion, the corruption, the scams, the lies, the deceit? You couldn't believe it, but it was in writing and they admitted it. But they never admitted it to the public, but to themselves. They kept everything a secret except amongst themselves.
1: Welcome to the Tom Nelson podcast. I have Dale Johnson here today. And Dale, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: I've been an analyst for quite a few years. I worked for Northern Telecom and then it became Nortel Networks as an analyst for their wireless equipment division. After they closed up business, I went to work for a municipality in analysis of water and wastewater treatment. And since then, I left that about 15 years ago. I've just been doing a bunch of different jobs. One thing
1: that interests me a lot about you is how you've dove in so far on the ClimateGate emails. Do you want to talk about
0: how much time you've put into it? Well, I first heard about it. I didn't know anything about the ClimateGate when it first came out. I was one of those that was scared of the AIDS crisis. I thought I was going to get AIDS back in the 80s. Then I believed in the ozone hole. I was going to get skin cancer. (laughs) And then Y2K, I thought the whole world was going to collapse. It didn't. And when I was working for the municipality, there was some, in the news, it was about the Copenhagen Climate Summit in 2009. And just before that opened up, in the news, it was about the ClimateGate emails. And I had some spare time, so just curious. I did, I've did. i always done a lot of reading and research, so I downloaded the miles just, just for shits and giggles, hmm. wanted to see what was going on. Anyways, I started reading, didn't think I'd find anything. I saw some snippets in the news and wondered, you know, if it's true, like, what's the context? Are these taken out of context? Are they made up? That kind of stuff. Anyway, so I started reading and there was about a thousand links and I didn't stop reading for a few weeks. Like it was, it was like a mystery novel. You didn't know what you were going to find in the next one. Some of the links didn't have much information on it. They had personal information. Other ones that there was back and forth, five, six, seven emails in a chain together, and like it was just fascinating looking at the inside of climate science. They're probably one of the premier climate science institutes in the world, what was going on behind the scenes? Nobody knew. Everything that they told in public, they were telling the exact opposite to themselves. Like it was hard to believe. I couldn't believe what I was reading. It was, it was a mystery novel, but it was almost unbelievable how much was involved.
1: Yeah, your experience was pretty similar to mine, I think, in reading the emails. I was kind of doing the same thing at the same time. But had you been a skeptic at all or been into the climate debate much at all before ClimateGate?
0: No, I had ignored it. I really didn't yeah. pay attention to mm-hmm. it. I was busy with work. I was on call 24 hours a day. I really didn't care, but I heard a little bit about it, and then I decided to read it. And I didn't stop reading. And then when the Climate Gate 2.0 okay. came out, it took me a little while. I go, all right, let's see what's in that one. And so five thousand three hundred lakes. I decided to read it. I did not get bored. Like it took months of reading it. And again, it just blew me away of what was going on in behind closed doors, the collusion, the corruption, the scams, the lies, the deceit, it was just, you couldn't believe it, but it was in writing and they admitted it, but they never admitted it to the public, but to themselves. They kept every, all everything a secret except amongst themselves. So
1: were you following people discussing this on like What's Up With That and other blogs, or were you mostly just reading on your own?
0: Just reading on my own. I wasn't familiar okay. with any of the names, the characters involved. Michael Mann didn't mean anything to me. Phil Jones didn't mean anything to me. I had no idea who these people were, but it didn't take long to find out <laughs> who they were. They, they put it in their own words.
1: So were you blogging at all about this? or I mean, Twitter, I don't know, you weren't on Twitter yet then?
0: or No, no. I wasn't on no? Twitter. I wasn't blogging. I wasn't doing anything just researching, getting my own information. And then a few years ago, I decided to go on Twitter and I came across a thread. I believe it was started by Patrick Morse years ago. And I somehow got into that and I go, maybe I could use what I've found in the climate Climategate emails and promote the truth. And how did that go? I was attacked viciously. <laughs> like- <laughs> There was, there was no tolerance for it. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you say, what you do. Like I tried first using skeptics, Tony Heller, Climate Audit, Steve McIntyre, nice. Patrick Moore. But anybody that's involved in the climate cult, they will not accept anything from the experts. It doesn't matter. You can have the same degrees, you can have higher degrees, if you're a skeptic denier, or like Michael Mann calls baddies, um, they don't accept it. So I go, okay, I know enough from the emails of the characters involved, hundreds of them. I'm going to use that information and put that forward, and then they have to either attack me or attack their own. And the mental gymnastics that they have to go through is just bizarre. Like... They, yeah. they can see it, they can read it, but their mind will not absorb it. They will not acknowledge that these are coming from Hansen. They're coming from Stefan Ram. Um, they're coming from Michael Mann. They're coming from Tim Osborne. They're coming from Jill Jones. They're coming from Kevin Tranbert. They, they just don't accept it. It's in writing, but they, w- they won't acknowledge it. Their mind, their brains are turned off. Like Their wise, eyes wide shut applies perfectly to them.
1: Yeah, I think that's been my experience too, that when people are really in uh, in on it, it seems like it's very hard to convince them. But do you think you were convincing people off on the side, people who weren't convinced either way? But that that's my hope, that other people were reading, and, and I bet you were convincing people who weren't dug in yet.
0: I believe so, and I think it's an education of even the people that know what's going on, helping fortify and support them, and providing them information that they can use to support their arguments. But you can't go any more than straight from the horse's mouth. You can't get any information better than what they say about it. And you said you
1: kept a lot of handwritten notes, right? Did you keep many, like hundreds of pages of handwritten notes as you went through the emails, or how did you keep track of what you had already learned?
0: I, I, I didn't at the beginning. I just read them. But as I got more involved in it, I decided to start making infographics. Some people call them memes. I make infographics of exact quotes, put the source on it, so people can validate and verify it. I won't take anything out of context. If anybody has followed me since I started, I can validate everything that I post. There's nothing out of context. The context may not be there, but the context doesn't change the meaning of what they said. It just rationalizes and explains why they said it and why they meant it.
1: Yeah, so you'd put out like a picture and you'd have the ClimateGate email number on there, right? The quote and the number, something like that? Yes, yeah.
0: yeah. And now that website has gone down for some reason, but you can still access it through the Wayback Machine. So everything's still available. It might take a few seconds longer to find it, but everything's still there. 5,300-some links. And I'm guessing about three emails back and forth in each one. So there's over 15,000. And this is only, there's another 220,000 links to emails that have never, ever been published. I I don't think they ever will, but there's enough in these that destroys the the cult, the climate cult.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Did you uh, end up reading any books about ClimateGate or watch the movie that had Phil Jones in it, anything like that in modern times?
0: No, I read the ClimateGate emails, and then because of the characters involved, I decided to do some research on some of the characters, in listening to some of their YouTube interviews, reading their blogs, newspaper articles, magazine interviews that they were in, and it's more information on there because some of them, they don't expect to be challenged. Nobody goes, that doesn't make any sense, what are you talking about? And. They get the white glove treatment, the red carpet treatment, and anything they say is valid to the, to the interviewer, but it doesn't make sense to anybody else.
1: Okay, so you were putting up these memes on Twitter under a, a, an account that's defunct now? Or wh- what account did you use then?
0: I used, first off, I used B-L-A-U-B-O-K, but then I got, that got suspended pretty quick after I had 28,000 followers. Really? It was in the Trump heyday and through the 2016 and everybody was signing up. That got suspended because I guess I was a little bit too abrupt. And so then I started another one and I'm working now with a Filipina. She's a computer graphics and we use the name Dawn. It's it's not her real name. We're doing that to protect her identity. She has been stalked. She is being stalked by some of these, the climate cultists and she doesn't want to get involved. She's innocent. Graphic arts is her specialty. I do a lot of the research and help her with that. And then we use a guy that has a comedic background out of Vancouver. He gives advice on some of the more comedic aspects. He's done stand-up, he's done cartoons, things like that. So it's a collaborative effort. I do, I've probably done most of the research and I help her with the infographics.
1: That's a pretty well known account, right? I think people are gonna enjoy seeing this in the show description. I'll put the name of the account there, right? So people can go ahead and check it out. Yeah, a lot of good stuff out there.
0: I when the inquiries happened, I think there was seven or eight of them happened after the first climate gate was put online, leaked online. I thought something was gonna happen in the investigations. Because it's it's in writing. Deleting emails, telling people to delete emails, which was completely illegal, but the, none of the inquiries asked for any other emails. They dealt with those 1,000 links, and that was it. They whitewashed it. They said, oh, okay, the the Freedom of Information Act, it was contravened, but a six-month statute of limitations, that was it. End of show. Everybody can go home. And when the, the 5,000 were leaked online several years later like two years later nobody said anything it was quiet
1: (laughs) like did you see any official investigation that looked like the people even read the emails I didn't see any indication that they read the emails
0: no when they were investigating they didn't ask for any more emails right yeah and there was articles out within the day of within a day or two of those 5,000 links out saying, there's nothing new here. There's nothing to see. And I go, how can you read 5,000 links in a few hours? It doesn't make sense. It took me six months to go through it and kind of scan through them and make some, uh, make some infographics and things like that. When I started to get more serious on it, I took a book and there's pages and pages, every single email, every single link, I made crib notes as to what the main thing is. But there's so much in some of those emails, like you could, you could write a 26-volume encyclopedia set. The things that happened are so strange and some of them are extremely hilarious. You could do stand-up comedy, you could do a sitcom, and you wouldn't have to ad-lib much. They make fools of themselves just by what they tell each other. The first thing that really struck me was the freedom of information. The people at Climate Research Unit at University of Anglia, they were the epicenter of ClimateGate. They bent over backwards trying to avoid the freedom of information requests. They would get a list from David Palmer, who is the information guru, and he would go, okay, these these are the only reasons we can not comply with the FOI requests. And so they would go through the list and they try to come up with something that might be pertinent so they, they wouldn't have to comply. But Jones, Phil Jones got into trouble because he stopped right away, stopped sending the information. So he dug his own hole, and when he wouldn't send the data, wouldn't release the data, he said, I spent 25 years doing this, I'm not gonna give you the data, you're gonna find something wrong That's with that. it. So he, he says, I'd rather delete the data than give it to you. So he had an agenda to keep things secret. He started deleting emails and he was he told David Palmer that I'm deleting emails. He goes, No, no Palmer writes back and he says you can't delete emails, but because of the FOI requests, you have to say that you're doing it as part of your routine maintenance of your database. So he goes, oh yeah, that's what I was doing as part of my routine maintenance.
1: But this is all in writing in the Climacate emails. Him admitting that he's deleting
0: it. Yeah, and they're telling each other to delete emails, anything involved with IPCC because they were requesting that information. They said, as soon as we're finished, our work with the IPCC, delete everything you got. Gotta have nothing left. And it's all in writing. They, They can't deny it. Nobody has ever proven that any of the emails were out of context or that they were fabricated, falsified in any way. Mm-hmm. I, you have to take it at, at their word.
1: I do enjoy the gymnastics over Mike's nature trick. They're trying to make us think that that was no big deal, but I think yep. that was a critical, yeah.
0: Yeah, Phil Jones coined the term Mike's nature trick because he used it himself. But there were several deceptive parts, aspects to that, other than just the hockey stick blade. Yep. They, uh, wanted to remove the variability so they made the stick flat Yes. and if we did that up here in Whitehorse Yukon our average temperature is minus 1 degree Celsius like 30 degrees Fahrenheit if you average that out over a hundred years or a thousand years it's below zero but every year our temperatures vary from minus 42 minus 45 degrees up to 90, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 40 Celsius to 35, plus 35 Celsius. So there's the variability is removed when you smooth it. And they played with different smoothing 50 year, 100 year. Mike, when his methodology came out and he didn't give him the results he wanted, what he did, because when they came to certain tree rings, instead of warming like the observations were, it showed a decrease in temperature. He goes, well, that's no good. So he took a chainsaw and amputated it. And then he took the observations and then hacked and sewed it on to his smooth graph, And it looked like it was a huge increase in temperatures and it wasn't, but the IPCC took that, ran with it. And Hans von Storch is one of the honest guys in the alarmist camp he berated the IPC for not challenging it. Nobody said that this was different than all the other papers. It was different than the consensus up to that point, but nobody challenged it. Nobody says you have to prove the others wrong before you can show that you're right. And he didn't, everybody just jumped on the bandwagon and said, we're in for hell on earth. It's gonna be like Venus and it's not. It was all a scam, and- but he, he, he wasn't the only one. Phil Jones coined the term, Ken or Keith Briffa, he had the Briffa bodge, and he did it different. Jones would take the results they didn't like, cut them off, and then add what they wanted. But Keith Briffa goes, that's too hard. He says, I'm just gonna inflate the numbers that are there, and then we'll get the rise that matches that matches a Michael Mann, Tim Osborne. He he did the exactly the same thing. He did what Michael Mann did. He chopped off from 1960 or so because of hiding the decline. Even though he said it's not a good thing, he advised people to do it. He said, you know, you you gotta cut off from 1960 because of the decline. And so he did the same thing. And he implicated Tom Crowley and Lowry, I I don't remember what his first name was, also doing the same thing. So there's at least six of them, seven of them that did exactly the same thing. They hid the decline. They used smoothing to reduce the variability so it looked like everything was stable and it wasn't stable. And then there was also a discussion of
1: the 1940s warm period, right? About removing the blip or why the blip, do you remember that?
0: Yeah, yeah. The thing they disagreed with, they had to get rid of. First it was the medieval warm period, the, the little ice yes, age. Yep. And then they came across some inconvenient sea surface temperature data, 1940s, and yes, they yep. came up with a lot of different reasons or different rationalizations how, get, how to get rid of that. We got to remove this blip, and he's, he chose, I forget the character's name, but he chose a specific parameter to put in to remove it. And he says, if we do this to land, we do this to see, but we still have a blip, so how do we explain it? And they, they wanted to get rid of it and the sea surface temperatures, which they were talking about, were the most critical part of a global average temperature. It's 71% of the Earth, and Phil Jones said that the sea surface temperatures, the ships, they're not designed for climate sensitivity. You can't take a moving thing going across the ocean and find out what the climate's doing. You're in a different place every day. And there was enough, the temperatures themselves were sketchy enough if there was a storm going, people aren't going to go out on the deck and throw a bucket overboard. So they just copied down what somebody had written before and maybe yes. changed it a little bit. They came up with probably a dozen different ways where they could adjust the sea surface temperatures, the type of buckets, canvas, wood, double insulated, whether it was an engine intake. Then they came up with more ways they could adjust sea surface temperatures. Whether the ship was laden or whether it was empty, the speed they were going they used that and anytime you want to adjust sea surface temperatures you can make up a reason to go back yes. and do it which is what and then the buoys came in in the late i guess eight 1980s 1990s and 2000s the electronic argo, yeah. argo Ar- buoys came in well that created a problem because it showed well some of the emails say that that The buoys were biased warm. Some of them, most of them said that they were biased cold. And so what the hiatus was a huge problem. The cooling from 1998 actually is kind of pretty flat. And so what Tom Carl did on his own, he got a few of his other comrades at NOAA together, and they adjusted the Argo buoys. Even though they were high tech, the latest technology and comparing them to the buoys, which is dodgy as all get out. People reading with a flashlight in the dark as to what a thermometer said. But they took the high-tech buoys, the Argo buoys, electronic readings, and they go, they're too cold. we got to warm them up. And it didn't make sense. Why would you adjust high-tech to the old tech? It didn't make sense. So I actually wrote them. He was gone by then. But I did email the second, the first co-author. It wasn't the lead author. but And I said, you know, what's going on? I said, that doesn't really make sense. Why did you adjust the high-tech temperatures to match what you thought was in the buckets? And he goes, well, he says, it doesn't really matter. And I go, yeah, it does. (laughs) It matters a lot. And I explained it to him, how you can take hands of a clock and you move, move them one direction or the other direction to show an increase. And I said, you're making an increase. And I said, if you would have done it the other way, it would have shown a yes. decrease. So he, said, so he replied back and he said it really didn't matter. So I, I made the point that it matters, which ones you adjust. And he said, well, it, it doesn't really matter. But he says, I didn't do the calculations. Here's the guy that worked with us. He did the calculation. So I mailed him. His name was Huang. H-U-A-N-G. And he, he said, it's just the way they came up with it in a meeting. They said, oh, hey, let's adjust the high-tech stuff to the old, outdated, obsolete methodology. And he said, and it really doesn't matter because, and that was the, known as the, the hiatus buster. Um. They did it without going through the hierarchy. They did it on their own, but they attached NOA's name on it. And they got scolded for doing that. But Huang wrote me back in an email and he said, it's all behind us now because he said two years later we did, we did another adjustment and we reversed what we did before. Okay. So they, they cooled, cooled the Argo buoys and then two years later they go, nope, let's raise them back up again. So they can rationalize an adjustment and then they can rationalize unrationalizing that adjustment and reverse it. That's the climate science.
1: Yeah, so the whole, the farcical handling of data all over the place, that, that jumped out at me from the Climate Aid emails. With Phil Jones talking about, I don't know if he used the term ad hoc, about how he would get data from maybe Antarctica or some places, and he, he wouldn't know where the raw data was anymore, and I don't think he even knew if it had already been homogenized or not, and it was just like, it was just a hodgepodge, it looked like to me, with no real control. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah he talked with a Canadian mission, um, and he says, uh, talking to the Canadian in the email, he says, we've got the data and the adjustments we've made, and then you've got your adjustments to the data you've made, and then we've got this other stuff. We don't know what adjustments are made, who made them, why they made them, but he said we're just going to run with it. There's nothing robust in any of the temperature data. Jill Jones said, he says, we've got temperature for France, but he says it's different than the data that France has for France. How does that make sense to anybody?
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it does
0: <laughs> And um, that's that's climate science.
1: It is. It is. Do you have any comments on what they were writing about the Harry Read Me file? I think that was pretty funny.
0: Yeah, I can pull some of them. Yeah, up. yeah. Yeah, Harry Read Me file is. He was the programmer that was tasked with trying to make sense of the data. And he, like the guy, he could have been a comic. Yes. What he was writing, there were a lot of times where I was reading what he was saying and i was crying laughing so hard yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, i'll just read a few of them sure his exact words i'm seriously close to giving up again the history of this is so complex that i can't get far enough into it before my head hurts and i have to stop each parameter has a tortuous history of manual and semi-automated interventions i simply can't just go back to the earlier versions <laughs> excuse the swear words but this is exactly what okay. he said he goes, oh, fuck this. It's Sunday <laughs> evening, I've worked all weekend, just when I thought I was done hitting on another problem that's based on a hopeless state of our databases. There's no uniform data integrity. It's just a catalog of issues that keeps, continues to grow as they're found. Although I'm thrilled at the high match rate, he was proud that he got an 87% match rate. He says, it does seem a little bit worse when you realize that everything else was lost. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is worse.
0: So it's evident that the data haven't only been swapped, but they've been scaled too. And then he makes another expletive. He goes on to say, you can't imagine what this costs me to actually follow the operator to assign false world meteorological organization codes. But what else is there in such situations? Especially dealing with a master data database of dubious provenance or which they all and always will be. Here's another one. What the hell is supposed to happen here? Oh yeah, there is no supposed to. I can make it up, so I have. And then he puts a smiley face. <laughs> he tries to make sense of it. He goes, it will allow bad databases to go unnoticed, good databases to become bad, but I really don't think people care enough to fix them. It's... And that's the main reason the project is nearly a year late. There's absolutely no station identification information apart from the World Meteorological Organization Code, none. No latitude, no longitude, no name, no country. The data must simply be added to whatever station has the same number at the start. There's no way to check it if it's right. I'm getting seriously fed up with the state of Australian data. So many new stations have been introduced, so many false references, so many changes that aren't documented. He goes, I'm very sorry to report that the rest of the databases seem to be nearly as poor state of Australia was. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of pairs of dummy stations. He goes, okay, how? Do those first two columns, and he's talking to himself, but he's documenting what he's looking at. Do they look like latitude and longitude? Do you, do me, me neither. In fact, the two columns never get outside the plus or minus 30. Oh, bugger, what the hell is going on here? Like, <laughs> another one. So what in tarnation is going on? Just how off-beam are these data sets? I got more results when I used an elimination radius. Knowing what it takes to debug this suite, this experiment ended here, the option, like, all the other options is totally undocumented. We'll never know what we lost. And that's the database that's telling us we're headed to Venus.
1: Yeah, we're gonna spend $40 trillion based on this data. And
0: we're gonna eat bugs. <laughs> yeah, and bugs. His actual name is Ian Harrison. He has mentioned yeah. a few times when the, the climate scientists wanted to run some data, they didn't do it themselves. They had him do it. He was, he was their gopher. He brought the donuts he brought the coffee, yeah. he brought the data. Okay, so in the big picture, do you have any ideas on
1: how this happened? How ClimateGate itself happened? Who did it? Was it, were they packaging up this stuff for FOIA and then somebody released this package later or what happened here?
0: Nobody really knows who yeah. did it. And the person has never admitted to doing yeah. it, mm-hmm. but they had to have known what was going on in the inside in the refusals to deal with the Freedom of Information Act because that's what the file was, File was named Freedom of Information Act in uh, 2009. So he knew what was going on and how he got into it. I don't know. He must have been on the inside yeah. somehow as a contractor or some other involvement on the inside at Climate Climatic Research Unit in England because he knew what was going on. He had, the first emails that came out, he just did a few word searches, downloaded yes. it, and was done, and I, I think he took all two hundred and twenty some thousand emails at that time, but he only yeah. released the first one. Nothing happened, and then a couple of years later, he released the second batch. Interesting. I don't know if you know Stephen Mosher at all. He used to work yeah. at Berkeley mm-hmm. Earth, and people were saying, and he's he's a climate alarmist, and he's an extremely obnoxious type of person. Yeah. He wrote a book, co-authored a book. And he said the, the snippets themselves weren't out of context. He said if you read the context, they're actually worse than that. But he never ever touched on the databases. Never. He never questioned them, even though it was in writing how corrupted the databases were, how dodgy and sketchy they were. He never mentioned it. He was just on the Freedom of Information Act and the six main characters that were involved, and that was it. And he worked, of course, he worked at Berkeley Earth with Richard Muller, who was one of the, probably uh-huh. the first the first alarmist that came out and just trashed Michael Mann. Michael Mann didn't take that too kindly to it, and neither did Michael Mann's colleagues. It's funny, they, they would criticize Michael Mann to each other, but when it came in, the, the public, they rounded the horses, they closed the gates, and then they just started the artillery. They just went crazy trying to demonize whoever dared question Michael Mann, even though they had questions about Michael Mann's work. And it came out slowly that all Michael Mann's tricks, everything he said was a lie. McIntyre's work was all wrong because it was on a spreadsheet and he blamed his assistant for sending Michael, uh, or Steve McIntyre, the spreadsheet. It wasn't a spreadsheet at all, but he made it up. And Tim Osborne says he didn't confront Anne that I know of, but he says it wasn't, wasn't an Excel spreadsheet, it was an FTP and ASCII file. He says, I don't know where is Michael Mann saying this. So people knew he was lying through his teeth, but they didn't approach him. Some people stayed away from Michael Mann with a 10-foot pole. They didn't want to yeah. get into any discussions because they knew they were going to be attacked. In fact, I don't know of any of his colleagues, co-authors, that Michael Mann did not attack personally in one way or another at some time cool. uh, I was reading. It was either Bradley or Hughes, i was reading an email the other day. And he says, I know to Michael Mann, he goes, I know you're bad as hell at me. And then he tries to explain yeah. what well, he did. I wasn't attacking your work. I was looking at this other work that had nothing to do with yours. And that was the type of guy Michael Mann was, he was shoot first. If there's anything left, shoot him again, shoot him again, shoot him again. There's (laughs) nothing left. And they
1: also talked about gaming the peer review system, right? That's getting rid of trouble. Some editors also.
0: Yeah, there was one, his name was Sayers. I don't remember the journal he was with, but they said that we think he's in the skeptic camp. If we can find any documentation (laughs) for this, let's go to AGU and get him out. Michael Mann, I just put an infographic today on Michael Mann. Michael Mann, he was asked by a journalist in Europe, she worked for the Wall Street Journal in Europe. And she was asked by him if, because he, he's he been accused of being a gatekeeper trying to silence, silence other views, well, he was the editor of a journal. And of course, he has a bias toward minimizing or removing the bit warm period, the Little Ice Age, there's nothing that's going to get through him because of his bias. So anyway, she asked him about that. This is a, her words to a, him in an email. Michael Mann, how do you respond to the critique that, as a key part of the review processes of publications in the field of climate science, as something other than a, as something of a gatekeeper that you have rejected and otherwise sought to suppress your work and contradicted your work? Michael Mann, I won't dignify that question with a response, <laughs> other than to say it betrays a deep naivety about the peer review process in science works. And it buys into what I consider to be a rather offensive conspiracy theories (laughs) that impugn impugn the integrity of editors, reviewers in general, and myself in particular. But a few years before that, soon paper came out, Harvard astrophysicists came out. They got published. So Michael Mann had conniptions. He goes, I think we have to stop considering climate research as a legitimate peer-reviewed Perhaps we should encourage our colleagues in the climate research community to no longer submit to or cite papers in this journal. We would also need to consider what we tell at the request of our more reasonable colleagues who are currently on the editorial board. The pressure was put on the people at Climate Research Journal was so heavy, they had six editors leave because one paper got published. Hans von Storch. He was one of the ones that said, it's not worth it, I'm out of here, I'm not gonna take that abuse. So six journal editors left because one skeptic paper got published. That's the type of pressure they put on anybody that did not toe the line, Michael Mann called it, they're not supporting the cause, which he used against Judith Curry. I don't know what she's doing, it's not helping the cause. Like, they have an agenda, and they don't care what gets in the way. They're going over it, and they're mowing down everything that's in the way. While the ClimateGate emails showed what they were doing and exposed it to the world.
1: A very good analysis. What do you think is happening now behind the scenes? Do you have any ideas what what's going on now with the adjusting of the data? Can you tell it all from the outside? It's pretty hard to tell when we can't read their emails now, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. well, just what the emails that I've had with NOAA, and I've emailed them too, but with the, the hiatus buster. And then they reverse those changes two years later. You know they're still playing shenanigans. They could do whatever they want. Yeah. I wrote NOAA, and I asked them about Tom Carl's statement in 1989, it says the, the climate cooled from 1921 yes. to 1979. So I asked them, I says, do you have anything from that era, any pamphlets, documents, any graphs from that? We can validate that. And they go, we don't have it anymore. It's gone. We just have the updated stuff. Like, (laughs) they destroy the history. And then they use the plausible deniability we don't have anymore. We've updated it and it's gone. We can't get it back.
1: You must be a fan, though, of Tony Heller's work when he's looking at these adjustments and looking at even like old newspaper clippings, things like that.
0: Yeah, used his newspaper clippings, but instead of using them because everybody knows they come from his site, I would go and find the original, download it and copy it and make the quotes. That way they can't relate it to Tony Hallett. It's the same information, but it's from the source. It doesn't come from a climate skeptic that they will discount out of hand.
1: Is your plan now in upcoming years to keep working through the Don Twitter account or do you have any other plans to make your work public any other place?
0: No, I've thought about putting together some books on it mm-hmm on each of the main characters on it, but it's just, there's so much information in the 15,000 emails. It would take five lifetimes to Mm -hmm. just do Michael Mann. You can't describe what he did in a chapter two. Like it takes, it would take a book to do it. And he's mentioned in so many of the emails, you have to go through them, put them in chronological order. And it's just mind numbing. But he does make a fool of himself. He was against the hiatus before he was for it. And then he was against it again later. He just threw his name on any paper that was going He says, yep, take me in it. I'm in it. In fact, there was one paper he was co-author in, and his name was way down the author list. And in that peer-reviewed paper, they put it as kind of the contribution, the level of contribution. He was way at the end, near the end. And he goes, I think I did more than that. He says, why am I so far down? And then he put a sad face behind <laughs> it. He wanted, he wanted to be bumped up higher in the higher in the author list because he thought his stuff was more important.
1: That sounds like him.
0: So outing, I, <laughs> I want to get a handle on how many hours you put
1: in. You said you put in maybe eight to 10 hours a day reading ClimateGate emails for a while, right? A while back or?
0: Yeah, so, I yeah. had a full time job, yeah, but there was a lot of free time in it. It's on call, on demand according to a schedule. Okay. And if I had two, three hours downtime, I'd start reading emails. And it was constant. At night, I'd read emails. In the daytime, when I had spare time, I'd read emails. I was probably doing more reading emails than I was eating and sleeping.
1: <laughs> and for a long it, time, right? Yeah.
0: Oh, for months, Yeah. absolute months. I wanted to get through all of them. Probably 75 80% might be pretty boring, really nothing to do. But the other 15, 20, 25% yeah. would blow your mind, anybody that had a, an objective point of view.
1: Okay. And, and how about nowadays? Are you still spending a lot of time just looking around at new climate stories and new claims and things like that?
0: I kind of stopped for the last year or so reading up on Catherine Hayhoe. Yeah, Michael Mann's interviews and things like that. I've got enough information from the Climate Gate emails, reading the blogs like uh, What's a One by Alarmus, started oh. in Europe, Climate. If they wanted to come up with something different to argue against a skeptic's paper, they would go to that website and put all the information on there. And there's about five or six of them. It was uh, co founded by Michael Mann. A real climate, you mean? Or- yeah, that's the one. Yeah, okay. and you can see the links that Phil Jones, when he was discussing things with people that asked him questions, he'd lay out eight links to that blog. That's how they'd answer. It. Or he'd go, go read the IPCC. I'm not, I'm not bothering with you. <laughs> Yeah, read so, 30,000, uh, 50,000 pages of the IPCC to find out what was going on. Okay. They, they, wouldn't, yeah. they didn't tolerate questions, mm-hmm. none of them. I
1: think Gavin, at some point, maybe in the ClimateGate email, said that he was going to make the data available in as impenetrable as possible format. Okay. Another question is, are you a student of John Cook at all? Have you looked into his work much?
0: As skeptical science? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he blocked me because it didn't take very long. But I was reading some skeptic stuff, and they put out the information on his 97% consensus. I found the, his database. So they never include the database in his paper, so nobody asked for the data. But somebody found it. An internet sleuth found it and put it online. So I was reading through that, and it was pretty funny. But the categorization, they were trying to use things on Mars, how, did, how they could relate to global warming on Earth. But the most interesting thing was they've included the forum of discussion that went into before that paper was written. They had a private, they thought was private discussion forum, going back and forth, and they're coming up with ideas. They started ideas for their PR campaign before anybody read any abstract. They were always going, all right, we need to get some names of journalists, we gotta get some websites going, we gotta plan the PR for this 97% consensus. And oh, yeah. they would use people from the blog, no credentials whatsoever, reading abstracts and then trying to make a decision themselves whether it was for global warming or whether it was against it, things like that. And one of the carrots that they put out, the rewards like John Cook put out was for them. They would become a co-author if they analyzed two thousand abstracts. <laughs> they could be the dog catcher, a babysitter, anything. If they read and analyzed two thousand, they could be they could be a co-author in this paper that didn't have any database attached to it. That's
1: pretty funny. And, and yeah. they
0: also uh-huh. had the Nazi pictures. They were oh, really yeah. proud of the people had photoshopped them into Nazi uniforms because skeptical science had the SS. And oh. so they took that and they were actually really proud of the being photoshopped into Nazi uniforms until somebody found it, called them on it, then all of a sudden it was gone, but that information is still available on sites. Okay. And it, it was thoroughly embarrassing, but they were, they were thrilled that people were making them appear to be Nazis because that's what they are. <laughs> and one thing okay. about skeptical science, I came across a skeptic who's, who's a brainiac. I won't mention his name, but he you, he found an article by Naomi Oreskes, who was probably the first one that did the climate consensus. Yes. And anyway, she wrote a paper. It's not dated, but it was from her days of University of California, San Diego, that was talking about the cooling, through the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Skeptical Science used to have that on their website. But when they found that it was inconvenient to their agenda, it was gone. But he had a copy of it, and he sent me a copy of it. And I've posted that it's a four-page article, plus references. And whenever I post it, I CC in her, her Twitter account. She's she's never discussed anything, but... She, and then she's gone to the extent of saying that the, the cooling air wasn't real. And I go, yeah, it was. You said it was. How, what are you talking about? Like, they deny history. They delete it. They burn it. They chop it off. And then they pretend it never happened. And then they just keep with the same topic, at the propaganda, and the talking points of the current day, even though their own history shows that they're lying. They don't care. They don't think anybody's noticing. They don't think anybody's seen it. Gavin Schmidt, he was in an online, it was kind of a back and forth with a statistician. And Gavin would make a comment, and then the statistician would give his perspective. And I would take the statistician's word over a mathematician. Right. They deal with statistics, how to evaluate statistics. In fact, that's one of the reasons, one of the things that the uh, review into Mann's work the formal US yes. review is that he didn't have a grasp of statistics. He knew an algorithm, he knew just the algorithm, but he didn't know statistics. All right. He put too much confidence in his own work. But this statistician was back and forth. And then Gavin Schmidt made one extremely important statement, and it was the 95% confidence level. He said that it's very likely just to be an imaginary comfort level. So he didn't put any, any faith in the ninety-five percent confidence level. It's just imaginary, being being comfortable. Uh, so and they use that ninety-five percent or ninety percent confidence level as if it actually means something. It doesn't. They just throw it on to try to convince people that what they're saying is pretty confident. I can say I can give, I can sell you a lottery ticket. Say I'm ninety-five percent confident you're going to win. Like
1: right that's everywhere in the the ipcc report right that's everywhere those confidence levels and we're supposed to think that they calculated that and that means something and and again it's just made up i think it's
0: it's completely made up and it's done by consensus who votes as to what confidence level (laughs) this is they go yeah cheers in fact sometimes in the ipcs they they said we've got a really high confidence level on this but we don't have enough peer-reviewed papers let's go find some peer-reviewed papers so we can make this confidence level seem more realistic that's not science. That's circus.
1: Do you have other points you'd like to make before we wrap up this episode?
0: Thunberg. Uh, she came out with the the climate strike. It was supposed to be spontaneous. Everything happened just off the cuff. But I decided to do research into her. I had no idea who she was. I heard about the climate strike, and then I started to read up on about her. I wasn't just reading mainstream media. I was trying to find it information from Sweden trying to find the information from the United Kingdom. And I found an interesting interview, a YouTube interview from Swedish TV Channel 5. They were a documentary channel, reality, docudramas, things like that. They weren't into the normal programming. Her parents approached that channel when she was 12 or 13 years old and tried to sell her as for an eight episode series, I don't know whether it's on climate or environment. At the time, yeah. and she's 12 or 13 years old. This was two years before the climate strike started. They tried to pawn her off. At that time, the TV station says we're not interested. And then in early 2018, there was a new. There was a group. They wanted fresh new faces. Okay. Put together, so they ended up talking to a newspaper, and they had a contest essays on climate. And Greta was one of those that put in a, an essay. She finished in second place. That was in May. Also in May, her mother was at a climate symposium with Ingmar rentshog Ah, uh, okay. He's he's the guy that started We Don't Have Time. And he had training from Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. So that started, started meshing together. She met him. He had met Al Gore and they had worked together on PR, how to how to make money from the, the, the green energy scam. PR, working with companies like that. So that's how they're related. There was a guy named Bo Thorin, very wealthy person, worked in investment firms and that. And he was the one that called the winners and offered them to come to a meeting. And he said at the meeting, Greta was there. And he said, you know, what we'd like to do, because of the Parkland shooting, they went on a strike. He says, we want to do something like that, a climate strike. So it was his idea. Uh, apparently, nobody nobody ran with it. But Greta went back and maybe talked with her mom and father about it. And they figured they were going to do it. So it wasn't on her own. She didn't come up with this idea herself. And then things developed. They had brochures pa- printed out for that day, but this had been a couple years in the making, probably around the same time that the TV station was discussed with regarding docudrama about Greta. The mother started writing a book. So the week of when the school protest, the climate strike happened, by the way Twitter, her Twitter account was set up a month before. So this was not spontaneous Hmm. at all. The book was published at in stores four days after the strike started. You can't publish it, find a Find a publishing company, edit it, go through all the edits, come back, have it printed, published, and readied on the bookstore in two or three days. Right. It takes a year or two or three to do that. So this was all in the background going on in place, and they pretended this all happened. One of the people involved at the beginning was Ingemar Hentz Renshawg. with Climate Reality Project and we don't have time. Greta joined up with a youth council and put her name on the youth council. And so he started publicizing it. He had walked by her climate strike because he got an email the week before from Bo Thorne saying that this is gonna take place, it's gonna be at the apartment buildings, go there, bring a photographer. So he brought a photographer. He pretended that it was all off the cuff. He accidentally yeah. was walking by and he saw that and he accidentally had a photographer. <laughs> with him. Like, but there's emails between them that showed that this wasn't true. He got information from it a week before. So he made the preparations for there and then he started blogging about it, putting it on social media. One of the groups that was in, his name was Anders Wilt, Wilkman. He's with the Club of Rome. He was one of the people behind this climb convention. That they'd gotten together and they had they put a letter out and published the letter seven of them five of them were from this group very wealthy people green investments investment groups and he was in he used to be co-president of the cup of rome so he's tied into that and then greta i'm not sure exactly how it happened i have my suspicions as to how it happened but she pretended to get offended that we don't have time was using her name for publicity. Okay. And she wasn't involved in it, even though she signed up for the youth council and willingly part a member of it. So she jumped ship from that to Bill Bill and Melinda Gates One Foundation. They took her over and she became the her handler was Oh, what was her name? Newbauer. Yes, yes, yeah, new buyer, yeah. a Rothschild heir. okay, Filthy rich. She And she was had volunteered or was paid by one Bill Gates Society Foundation or volunteering for it, doesn't matter. That's how she's related to, Greta got related to Bill and Melinda Gates. And, of course, George Soros is on that board of directors too, and he's involved in that. So there's huge money involved in behind the scenes of Greta. This was years in the making. And it's all to promote green investment firms and green investment. They're millionaires, billionaires making billions off this. It's not for the climate. It's money. It's all about the money.
1: That's very interesting background. I did not know some of this stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah they're all green energy venture capitalists. <laughs> Filthy yeah. rich. They're not making enough money doing what they're doing. So they're using Greta to make money. But fortunately, COVID came around, and it took all the oxygen away from Greta. She's doing whatever she can to try to prime that interest up again, pretending she had COVID, and she healed herself at home. She never tested positive for COVID, right? but she said she had it because that was a thing at the time, get involved with COVID. Yeah, I had COVID. Then now she's to get her name in the... In the news again she's suing sweden for not meeting climate targets <laughs> they're a filthy rich family there's pictures of her with her mother sitting on yes. twenty thousand dollar chairs
1: i saw that yeah
0: they're not poor people mm. they're not hard done by
1: very interesting do you have any final thoughts on where the climate debate is going any predictions at all everybody's
0: going full steam ahead with agenda 35 our prime minister Is already cutting fertilizer for the farmers. Yes. He's made it 2035. Everything's going to be electric. He's going to outlaw gasoline. They're going to start with social um, ratings. And you're going to be able to buy and stuff that you want. It's all coming down the pipe. Fortunately, I'm 60-some years old. I'm not going to be there like the 20-year-olds are going to have to suffer. But it's coming. Every nation is doing... California's gone 2030, the U.S., they're going to go 2030. They have no idea where the raw materials are going to come from. They can't supply. 2% of the vehicles in the U.S. are EVs. To make it 100%, even not replacing any batteries, they need a 5,000% increase in material. Where's it going to come Uh, from?
1: uh, Nobody has thought Uh, that through.
0: (laughs) No, I've been reading some people who have done analysis on it. They're going to run out of material Within 10 years. So we're going to be left yeah. just like the WEF wants it. Nobody's going to own yeah. any private yeah. cars. They'll all be jointly owned. We're going to have no privacy. That's coming. And we're going to be happy. We're going to be eating bugs for dinner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> On that note, anything else or should we wrap up this one? No, I think that's good. Okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot for doing this. I really enjoyed this. You're an interesting guy. Extremely knowledgeable. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, yeah I'm available anytime.
1: Okay, let's do it again. Dale Johnson, we'll talk to you later. All right, thank you.